The title of this message is The Smashing Clash of Culture. That may bring to mind some epic movie in which people of one culture war against people of a competing culture. It may bring to mind our political landscape here in America in which a Pew Research study found 81% of voters say they cannot agree with the other side on basic facts. Or how about 49% of Republicans, 55% of Democrats say they are afraid of the other party. Or it may bring to mind, on a lighter note, if you're into gaming, a mobile video game called Clash of Cultures, and even a related board game by that same name. But we're not talking about a Clash of Cultures plural, but rather a class of culture singularly here in America. One that somehow is under God and not under God at the very same time. And the consequences aren't just winning or losing a video game with yourself, or a board game with others, or even a political election office, or even a war in the world. No, the smashing clash of culture we're talking about today has consequences far longer and far greater than any of those. Its consequences are eternal. Ashley King, in a modern poem, addresses this smashing class of culture. So, listen in. Dear Culture, I'm writing to you because your lies are so pervasive in this American generation. Because listening to your lies was once my brain's fixation. But for years now, I have had the realization that your lyrics are an utter fabrication. That you sing with the serpent's tongue over this nation like lullabies in a dream world destination. Contorting and distorting people's imagination. And with your control and manipulation, we take in the sound waves that come through our radio station. Be who you are and express your orientation. The world is about you and your instant gratification. You sing, I'm on the edge of glory with your own glorification. You fire up the feeling of victimization so that rebellion and revenge feel like the only justification. And you so conveniently offer every emotional accommodation. While we sit back and allow your perverted narration over our lives and let you control our destination, Your lyrics are like cancer in need of radiation. I have watched as the youth cry out and worship you in adoration with a crazy, obsessive, unhealthy fascination. They look to you for confirmation and validation because in reality, they are yearning for a serious revelation from the depths of despair, depression, and frustration. But they are jumping and taking rest on a sandy foundation because what you have to offer is nothing with any legitimate explanation about how the world works or true love clarification. What they need is an internal evaluation because truly they search for a God who offers a heart transformation. And while you can do nothing about their messed up situation, my Redeemer, named Jesus, offers redemption. Here is my battle cry and declaration. With God on my side, I will stand against the desensitization. I'll stand in the gap and let irritation be my motivation. And though from where you're standing looks good from your calculations, my God uses different equations. He says we're all lost and in need of salvation. He's the author of true love, and there's no other replication. You know, the smashing clash of culture poet Ashley King spoke of is this, as you see pictured on the screen, with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, because this is the picture of the culture that surrounds us, fills us, and that we live in. It's a culture on one hand that is under God and a culture at the same time that is not under God. 
Did you know before 1954 that the Pledge of Allegiance didn't have the words under God in it? As in one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The words under God were added by President Truman 63 years ago. He said it was because of who we are and because of how our country was founded. It was also because of the seriousness of the threats of Russia, a communist country espousing socialism, to which he said, we need to make sure that we are living under God. But in contrast that today, can you imagine trying to add these words under God officially to something like the Pledge of Allegiance now? I hate to say it never happened now. The objections and the objectors would come out of the word work to fight that, to oppose that, proving that sadly, as the pledge says, one nation under God, we are not so anymore. And that is the culture which surrounds us, fills us that we live in. It's a culture that's under God, and it's a culture that's not under God at the very same time. And so this smashing clash of culture we're going to take a look at today happens within each of us. Because as Abraham Lincoln once said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Which he actually got from Jesus, who said in Mark 3.25 in the NIV, that if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now when Lincoln said it, the country was wobbling and waffling with its devotion over slavery. Now when Jesus said it, he was referring to those that are waffling and wobbling over their devotion to him versus their influence of the evil one. And this clash of the world's culture, which is fueled by Satan, stands in direct contrast to God's culture, which is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And this clash happens externally all around us, but ends up seeping into us and ends up seeping into our spirits. And as a house and a country certainly wobbles and waffles when it's divided, so too do we, you and I, as followers of Christ. But certainly God didn't create us to live that way. So let us stop the unsteadiness of trying to stand on such an unstable foundation as the one culture wants us to stand on. Because a big part of its effectiveness is our inability to see its effect on us. You see there on the screen a scale with numbers from 1 to 10. And I'd like you to consider to what degree do you think culture has impacted you personally? In other words, if you were to add up all the little ways and all the little things that culture here and there pulls you away from God, with one being a small amount and ten being a large amount, to what degree do all the varied and sundry ways all put together, does culture pull you away from God? Think about that for a moment. You know what I'm talking about? It's all those little things which grab some form of your attention in your life, which you do pay some attention to, even though at times you may wonder and feel like, maybe I shouldn't be paying attention to this. So, if you were to think of all those situations, all those instances, all those thoughts, and add them all up together, to what degree would you say today's culture distracts you or pulls you away from God? For some of us, all combined, it may be like a one or a two, but for some of us, it may be a bit more like even a four or a five. So to what degree does culture impact you personally and subtly pull you away from God. Because a big part of today's culture's 
insidious infectiveness is our inability to see its effect on us. In fact, every so often we hear someone well-known who was arrested for a DUI, driving under the influence, a.k.a. drunk driving. Not to speak badly about someone, but there is a local attorney who remain nameless, whose face and words appear on numerous advertisements and TV, radio, billboards, who has more than one DUI. And since his firm appeals to people who may have been injured by drunk drivers, you have to ask, what was he thinking when being caught in doing that himself? Well, the answer obviously is the alcohol he was drinking began to influence his thinking. And so he and everyone else who's arrested for a DUI doesn't realize the degree to which the alcohol is influencing them. That's how it works. That's what it does. But you see, culture does the very same thing. In fact, I saw a video which likened the way culture influences us to drift away from God without our realizing it to the metaphor of being a scuba diver. I'd like to share it with you. It's about three and a half minutes long. So watch this. For a select few, diving becomes second nature. The backflip off the boat? No big deal. They take the anchor rope to the bottom of the ocean as if it was the road to work. When they arrive, they get their bearings and simply let go. They are familiar with the ocean because they experience it so often. Yet they're still amazed by its beauty from time to time. No matter how many dives a diver logs, there is one thing they can never forget to do. Keep the anchor rope in sight. You see, the anchor rope is much more than the line connected to the anchor. It serves as a marker just how far they are from the most important thing, the boat. Because the current's most dangerous quality is not the enormous show it creates during a storm, it's its invisible and deceptive quality of taking divers where they don't want to go, even when they were simply diving as usual. Even the most experienced divers can make the grave mistake of taking their eyes off the rope. When divers realize the current has swept them away, the amount of emotions accompanied by questions cannot be counted. So what in the world are they going to do in this situation? Divers don't throw up their hands and surrender. Many swim in different directions, just trying to find the rope. The rope now becomes the very prayer of their lives. If the rope is not found, there eventually is only one option. Surface to the top, hoping for air, not from a limited tank, but from a limitless sky. As they slowly make their way to the top, there is only one thing on their mind. 
where will they find the current has taken them? You see, that is a metaphor for us. We're adrift, too, in the sea of culture surrounding us that we're swimming in and we're swimming through. And the currents of our culture want to help us drift away from God, gently pushing us away from his anchor and his line in our lives. And just like in the video, we're in the sea of this culture. We don't notice the subtle drifting either. So what does God want us to do about culture's subtle drifting influence upon us? Well, take a look with me at a guy in the Bible named Daniel. It's the same Daniel was in the lion's den. And we're going to look at him because Daniel was inundated by the culture around him. And that culture was an evil culture because, you see, he had been taken captive from his homeland in Jerusalem, and he was placed in Babylon. And Daniel then was plucked from all the refugees there that had been placed in the king's court and was told what his new name was, was told what he was to wear, he was told what he was to eat, he was told what he was to read. And like everything about Daniel's world was impacted by this new culture he found, found himself in. But he wasn't controlled by that culture because Daniel lived under God. And I believe we can see from his life how we can live also under God in a way that will really make a big difference in our lives too. And we see that King Nebuchadnezzar, he came to Jerusalem, completely destroyed the city, took all the things from the temple, put it in his own court. Nebuchadnezzar also took the best of the best people. He exiled them. He took the educated, the learned, the merchants, those who had wealth and influence, the best of the best back to Babylon. And his plan was to inundate them with Babylonian culture so that they would serve in the Babylonian government. That's what he did. And here was his plan as we see it in Daniel's first chapter, verses 3 and 5 in the New International Version. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. And this is what he was looking for. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. I want to tell you, there was somebody in the 1930s and 40s in Germany who also lived by this policy, and his name was Adolf Hitler. He said, you know, I'm going to take the best of the best, and I'm going to create this nation of perfect humans. And that was Nebuchadnezzar's plan as well. So his chief court official, Aspenas, was to teach the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them, and who was the them? That's, of course, Daniel and his three friends from Israel. He assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now, if we were to read on, it says that these men were also given new Babylonian names. Daniel was given the new name Belteshazzar. His three friends were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what the Babylonians did was change their language. When they would speak in Hebrew, they would say, no, 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 you have to speak in Babylonian. And when they would show up in comfortable Hebrew clothes, they would go, no, no, no. You have to go back to your room and change into Babylonian clothes. When they sat down for breakfast, it was Babylonian food. They would say, I just want some simple, fresh, healthy food. And they would say, no, no, no. You have to eat this rich Babylonian food. Why? Because they were being completely inundated with the culture that they were in. And the Babylonians' dream was to change them from being Israelites into becoming Babylonians. This was the call that they were living under. 
And friends, it's very much like the world that you and I live under today. We too are facing a head-on attack from the enemy Satan who hates God, hates all those striving to follow him and his son, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want us to live under God. He wants us to live under the world's values. He is going to use culture to inundate us. He's going to use relationships and hobbies and hopes and dreams, desires, even disappointments for us to find satisfaction and solace in his way, the world's way, to make us feel whole and fulfilled. And that is his head-on attack. His goal is to numb us from the things that are godlike. His goal is to change the moral fiber of our being. His goal is when we see tragedy in the world that we don't really feel bad about it. His goal is when we see people taking advantage of to say they deserve it. His goal is a head-on attack. He's trying to change what we believe is true about God and about how we should live. And that was the world that Daniel was also living in. But what did Daniel do? We get to the eighth verse of this first chapter of Daniel in the NIV. It says this, But Daniel resolved, he resolved, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. What did he do? He resolved. He made the choice. He determined how it was he was going to live. You see, Daniel stood up for who he was and for what he was going to do. He said, you can call me by whatever name you want, Daniel or Belteshazzar, and I'll wear whatever clothes you lay out and put before me. But here's the deal. I am not going to eat your food or drink your wine because God told me not to partake of that sort of stuff. You see, the food and wine, besides being rich and unhealthy, also had been offered to idols. And Daniel said, no, this is where I'm going to draw the line. I'm resolving to stand here, and I'm not going to be influenced by that stuff. You can change my name because I know who I am, but you can't change how I'm going to live in the world because how I respond will impact and will influence others. You see, Daniel made some predetermined resolutions about how he would live. And that's what I want us to do. I want you and I to make some predetermined resolutions about how it is that we might live. You see, if we wait until we're in the moment of a battle, man, it's often too late. If you wait until you're in the heat of the battle to determine whether you're going to live like God or you're going to live like the world, if you haven't already resolved that, then you're in danger of living much like the world. When Jesus was tempted by the devil after not eating out in the desert for 40 days, the devil said, hey, want to turn that rock into bread and have a bite? And Jesus said, no, having already predetermined his response in all his dealings with the evil one, as we see in Matthew 4, 4 in the Living Bible. Jesus said, no, for the scriptures tell us that bread won't feed men's souls. Obedience to every word of God is what we need. You see, Jesus focused on the spiritual, eternal things and not on earthly, worldly things. And if he hadn't predetermined his resolve here, well, his turning that rock into bread and taking a bite would have been mighty, mighty appealing to him. You see, it's hard to say no to temptation when you've already experienced temptation. It's too late. We have to predetermine how we're going to take a look at that and how we're going to act. You know, in the mountains, they have these things called guardrails. And what do they do? Well, they keep you from driving off a cliff. 
And if you hit one with your car, it's going to damage your car for sure, but it's also going to keep you from driving yourself off that cliff. The reason they're there is because the transportation department in each state has determined how far you can actually drive in the mountains and how far you can go. And friends, we need to predetermine how far we are going to go and how we're going to walk, how we're going to act, and what we're going to do. Because when you're in the middle of such things and you haven't figured out, often it's too late. So let me ask you this. What decisions do you need to make to be fully under God rather than under the seductive appeal of culture? What decisions do you need to make to live for God and under God and not be sucked in by the lure of culture? And there is something I believe that will point us in that direction to help set resolve as a foundation that we stand on in this head-on assault of culture in which we live. And it comes from 1 Timothy 6, 6 in the RSV, which says this, There is great gain in godliness with contentment. And the great gain in godliness and in contentment is that you don't have to deal with all the many wants that the world tempts you to have. Because if you have wants, what do you do? You have to figure out how to fulfill them. And wants can consume your thoughts, consume your time, your finances, your heart, your emotion, your spirits, and can cause you to go to some pretty crazy lengths to satisfy them. On the other hand, contentment, by definition, helps us overcome discontentment, especially when it's filled with and fueled by God. Life is so much simpler, so much more enjoyable, so much freer, so much more fulfilling when we are content and we are blessed in that rather than being harassed constantly by being in want, which puts us in a constant state of discontent. So resolve to be content with God and start living your life in a different direction than the world wants you to live, always wanting more and more of the things that never, ever really satisfy you for very long. Because if you're not always being in want, but rather being in contentment, guess what? You can also embrace the priority to slow down because now you can afford to. In fact, one of the greatest blessings of contentment is peace. And so when you've slowed down in contentment, guess what? You also have time to pursue things that you've always wanted to pursue. You don't have to be putting those things always off. You don't have to be adding more and more and more things to your future to-do list. Instead, you have time to do things as they come up, which is a great way to live that many of us miss out on. Living in contentment, slowing down, getting to things you've always wanted to pursue also means you have time to spend with God. If you resolve to have godly contentment in your life, then you also desire to spend more time in God with it. The world and culture says what? You don't have time to spend with God every day. You have way too much to do. You're way too busy for that. And if you don't believe culture is a head-on attack against God, open your eyes to see it here. As it says, and we've all heard it in our lives, you don't have time to spend with God each day. So when godly contentment takes over your wants in life, you slow down. And you get so much more peace. Your view of time even gets rearranged as well. And then time with God is not a neglect, but it's something that rather helps you reflect upon your life, what it's really about, and how God wants you to live it. Then you'll understand, as Jesus said, that bread's not the thing uh, along with the stuff in this world that's going to feed our souls. 
One of the word of God that we hear as we read it each day, as we pray each day, as we ask him to guide us each day, to see things as he sees things, that's going to be our guide. And also, our seeing how he can make a difference in us, in how through us he can make a difference to others. And culture wants to discourage those things, don't they? Culture wants us to be hurried. Culture wants us to constantly be wanting things that are not going to really make much difference in our lives. They're only a short time. And then the culture wants us to, the cycle to start all over again. Want, 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 again and again and again. And so that goes in a way that never ends, in a way we're never satisfied. That's the smashing clash of culture that we face each day that we most often are not really even aware of. Daniel did what? Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved to live under God and not under the culture around him, trying to get him to live culture's way. Friends, let's resolve to do that. Would you join me today? Would you resolve to be content? Think about that. How, how nice would life be if you were really content to be free of wants, to have the freedom of that snare in your life, to reshape your life, to free you up, to have time to do what's really important in your life, to have time to also spend with God each day, read his word, speak to him, have him speak to you. All things culture says you really don't have time for. So you make that resolution with me. We determine to put guardrails up in your life to protect you from culture's enticements. There is so much in our lives that won't change unless we resolve to live that way. Unless we resolve to avoid things that are not good for us. They will again and again and again lure us in. Unless we were resolved to avoid certain types of movies, TV shows, or videos that entice us and lure us in ungodly directions, guess what? They'll do it. Unless we resolve to give generously to the things of God, guess what? It won't happen. Uh, the thought that I deserve this or I deserve it serves culture and not God. If God were to really give us what we deserve, it would be horrible. Not very pretty at all. But God has resolved to give us every opportunity to take a step back away from the world and away from culture and take a step toward him and toward the life that he wants us to live in contentment, not to be in want, freely to live in peace with a different view of our time and lives, not cultures, but his view, with time to pursue things we've always wanted to pursue. And most importantly, time each day to pursue him in feeding our souls. And back in 1995, a group called DC Talk came out with a song entitled In the Light. And I believe it reflects thoughts that we all have about ourselves as we live in this world and as we interact with culture. It's really a song of resolve to live in not the light of culture, but to live in the light of God. And I believe it can provide a step, a mark, motivation and your resolve to do so too as you listen closely now to its words.
won't you resolve with me to live in the light of God and resolve not to live in the subtle darkness of this culture? Will you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, how it does feed our souls. And help us today, Father, to resolve to live under you, under your influence in our life, and not to live under the influence of culture in our lives. Help us, Father, to realize that culture is a head-on assault to us and to you. And so help us, Father, to put up those guardrails where we know we need them and help us to fully pursue the freedom that you have from want, the freedom, Father, to have time in our lives for the things that are important, the freedom to have much shorter to-do lists because we can actually get to things when we need to get to them. And, Father, help us to have time for you. Our culture says that doesn't exist, but help us to prove culture wrong and resolve to live our lives under you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.